Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Priscilla. Will Kimbrough is my guest today. This is an interesting one. It's a fun one. I am always fascinated by musicians. I grew up for a brief time thinking I might be a musician. And I mean very, very brief. But uh, I remember in middle school in seventh grade thinking that if I played the guitar, then it would get girls to like me and get girls to notice me. So my mom had an old Sears Silvertone acoustic guitar that she had grown up with that I started just, you know, kind of messing around with and then eventually bought a really old kind of funky electric guitar and took some private lessons. And my guitar teacher was this old hippie guy with a long white beard and he used to smoke these little mini cigars in our practice room, which was about the size of a closet, and would just blow smoke in my face. <laughs> and it was hard to breathe. And I didn't learn a whole lot. and I didn't progress a whole lot because he loved to just sit back and play old songs. He loved playing Hotel California and House of the Rising Sun. And he would just kind of have me watch him play. And so, you know, after, I don't know, not quite a year uh, I stopped doing lessons, but for a brief time, I was in my uh, middle school's jazz band and was up on stage fumbling my way through some guitar chords and, you know, never got good enough. But Will is awesome. He got the bug around the same age as me. I think he says around 12 and uh, just started playing and writing songs and he has stuck with it ever since. He has a new album out, Spring Break that really deals with this quarantine time and this pandemic and just trying to make sense of all that. He wrote and recorded this whole record at home, just, you know, thinking about the world that we're living in now. So that album is out wherever you get your music, streaming, physical, whatever, you can listen to it. So I had a lot of questions for him about that, about just producing a record from home and the types of stories he's trying to tell in these songs. But I was also interested in just sort of his background. He grew up in the Gulf Coast of Alabama, uh, but has been in Nashville for a long time. And, you know, the Nashville music scene is fascinating to me, just thinking about how are these venues operating? How are these musicians doing? You know, there's so many jobs that depend on live music in Nashville. So we talked a little bit about that. And we also talked about his songwriting career, you know, separately from writing and recording his own music. He also writes songs for many, many artists, probably his biggest collaborator and you know, it's one that he's been collaborating with for a long time for the last four or five albums is Jimmy Buffett. So we talk a lot in this interview about what it takes to write a good Jimmy Buffett song. What is the process of writing with Jimmy and his band and just trying to figure out, you know, that sound, that perspective. But his songs have also been recorded by Little Feet, Todd Snyder, Jack Ingram, Gretchen Peters. Uh, you know, he's he's written a lot for other people, which is really cool. He's also produced a lot of music. And he also tours a lot and does, you know, session work, too, in studios. He tours uh, as part of Emmylou Harris's band. So, you know, he's a guy that has been around the music industry for a long time and has a really interesting take on it. For me, it's a world that I love looking at from afar, but it's one that I am not <laughs> in the music world at all. So Will and I have some deep conversations about art and the entertainment world and all of it and you know some fun talks about jimmy buffett and everything else and yeah it's a it's a fun interview i hope you enjoy it and i hope you'll check out will's new album spring break which is available wherever you get your music before we go into the interview i do want to play a little bit 
of the track All Fall Down off the new album Spring Break. So you'll hear that and then my interview with Will Kimbrough. Someone in the room don't play fair. Someone wants to make his own rules. Maybe nobody can see that in the hands of fools. Fools. Cause we rise and we fall together. We fly like birds of a feather. We shine through good or bad weather. It all comes around. We will all So I want to start by just sort of asking about how this quarantine period has been going for you. You know, these last, I guess we're up to seven months or so now. Well, it's been going fine for us. I mean, we've been healthy. Our family and friends have been healthy, except for uh, mostly the loss of John Prine. And uh, my wife and I are both self-employed, and she's a bookkeeper, accountant, and her clients have had lots of work for her to do, whether it was filling out the PPPs or just doing the regular bookkeeping. I came home and made this album in April. So I spent March doing some home session work. I mean, I, you know, I could go into each detail of each part, but in general, I'd say for us, we've been very lucky. I had laid the groundwork over the last 32 years in Nashville to have not only work to do to stay afloat, but also the drive to create for my own express expression. Sure and my own uh, therapeutic needs. And so I uh, I wrote a bunch of songs. I've written a whole bunch more songs, started a Patreon, started playing online, and I continue to do home studio work for myself and other people. And, and I work in studios around town. We mask up and hand sanitize and sit socially distant and make records. Wow. It's a whole different reality now, which is like, I, I see it on the TV side, less so on the music side for me, but right. just sort of, you know, it's oh, yeah. same kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned coming home sort of at the beginning of this. Had you been out on tour prior to everything shutting down? My wife and I were in Australia and we were um, on a tour. I was doing um, several festivals and some club shows. The first Festival was canceled because of the fires. The town basically burned down. Wow. And a town that's had a festival for many, many decades. And so we went to Sydney anyway and uh, hung out with some friends. And then I did the middle part of the middle two weeks of the tour. I played the Port Ferry Folk Festival down there on the Great Ocean Road and then played a club show in Melbourne. And then we flew to Sydney and at the Melbourne airport that morning, you know, crack of dawn, first thing in the morning, and everything shut down. All my gigs got canceled. So the the spring just turned into, you know, spring break. Right. And and so we decided we would maybe, well, we were already on the plane, you know, basically. So we flew to Sydney, and when we were getting our bags, we said, well, we could stay here for a couple of days and figure it out. And then we got a text from our youngest daughter who was on spring break from college. And she said, well, they're telling us not to come back, maybe come back in a few weeks and get our things. We're not going back for the rest of the year. So we just, then we, we were still, you know, sitting there with our suitcases at the Sydney airport. So we, my wife and I looked at each other and just said, well, let's go to the Qantas counter and go home. So we did. Wow. I wonder too, just sort of 
the those first couple of months really i guess in nashville like i i think of of your city as being so dependent on not just the the music scene you know recorded scene like you're talking about but but live right. music is such a big part of the culture there like just what was sort of the mood and you know the attitude i guess toward you know with with all the clubs and and everything shut down uh, i'll say for people like me there's many many layers i call nashville the onion you never finish peeling the layers uh, because people move here every day and every week. And so there's always a shifting amount of, I mean, people move here and, and most of them never leave. Yeah. So it's just a growing, growing, growing town with, you know, lots of people making all the money in, in healthcare or whatever and, and banking. And then thousands and thousands of musicians and people who work peripherally with music, lighting people, sound people, studio engineers, photographers, you know, people who are managers, people who want to be managers, people who want to work for labels, people who want to be publicists, you know, it just goes on and radio promoters. It goes on and on and on. Caterers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, bartenders, ushers. I mean, bartenders, everything. It's so, a huge, yeah, right. totally. So there's a whole live music scene, but I play Nashville a few times a year. I've been on the road. I yeah. mean, if you're going to, if you're going to make records and be a make and be a professional in music as an artist you got to go on the road right so you play around nashville some and you do it for fun and you make your make yourself seen but you go on the road i've been on the road 200 days a year for 35 years wow um but i've also been in the studio i'm in this i'm in my studio right now and working on something and i'm i'm maybe an unusual character who's a you know a singer songwriter but also a songwriter for other people and also a producer and also a session musician. And I've been a side man and toured with people like Amy Lou Harris and Rodney Crowell and Todd Snyder over the last 25 years off and on. And lately it's just been Amy Lou a little bit of the year, maybe 20 shows a year. Yeah. And the rest of the time is just me doing my thing. My live playing evaporated. I was about to, I was going to finish out Australia, come home and have the busiest spring of my life. And then, tour all summer on my own and with Emmy Lou, including big festivals with her, hardly strictly bluegrass, et cetera, et cetera. And we were going to go to France, you know, all these things that everybody's experienced, whatever, whatever you had planned, right. it got changed. Yeah. Uh, but, but so everyone hunkered down and figured out what to do. And one thing about the music community here is the musicians have never been on anyone's payroll as a full-time employee, except for a very small handful of people. Right. It may, I mean, like people that are Jimmy Buffett's full-time band, probably on retainer, you know, or maybe a few other people. Everybody else is just a, a freelance worker. Right. So we all have lived this way in one way or another our whole lives. What am I going to do next month? Okay, I know what I'm doing next month. What about the next month? Right. You know? Yeah. So it's freelance people. And so at first you're worried about everybody. And then you see that everybody's resilient, and we have been all these decades. So it wasn't a surprise to see one of my best drummer friends. He was like, well, you know, I've got two rental houses now, so, you know, it's not so bad. I just don't, I just don't have to be on the road. Yeah. And not everybody has had the same experience, you know, but but the, uh, but I tell you, the, the, the creative community is, is resilient and, and resourceful, and we have each other's backs. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a piece of it, too, is just sort of, you know, when you're – when you're kind of working gig to gig and just trying to figure out, like, as you say, how do I keep the calendar full? How do I figure out what comes after this thing that I'm on right now? 
Right. You you do get creative with sort of money and you know you you figure out how to stretch when you need to stretch and you know splurge. Yeah, I mean, and I've been doing this for yeah. for thirty five years. Right. So I mean, you know, you want everything to be set in stone and and all hunky dory and fine, but when when is that? You know, and I mean, I get it. Like I was thinking about you know what, the song on my new record that crystallizes the situation for me is the late great John Prine Blues because you know if you really listen to the song, it's not just about john it's about someone in nashville in this community walking around the neighborhood i was walking around with my wife and my youngest daughter and that was odd enough because it was early enough in this time to be where it still felt surreal right so my 19 year old daughter's like walking around with us like you know eight o'clock at night which is weird your 19 year old kids should be out out with their friends if they're if they're not if they're not off at college right And um, so she's just kind of hanging out with us and we're having a nice time walking around and my phone blows up. I can feel it in my pocket kind of buzzing and I reach down and I I find out that John Prine had passed away. And so he's really like one of the big pillars of this community. I mean, there's people like Vince Gill and a lot of other Emmy Lou, you know, a lot of people. But Prine had the respect of everyone and the love. The hipsters love Prine and also the country stars love Prine. Right. And and his his death was sort of so early in this too. I mean, it was like the end of March right. or something, right? So it was sort yeah, of one had, of those he had first been in big, Europe, right? Yeah, he had been touring Europe and working hard, and his health wasn't very good anyway. But yeah, he just unfortunately got COVID, and and then he passed away. So and so you know, the song sort of says, "Faces lit up by their screens, plague confined unknowns." So it's a very arty farty little first couple of lines. But what it means, of course, is everybody's looking at their phones, trying to keep in touch and figure out what's going on in the world, what's yeah. happening to us. And then, you know, we're all confined, even though we, I was luckily together with my my youngest and my, my wife. My oldest is cross town quarantine because she has asthma and during that time. So, you know, very surreal. And uh, and then I, I and then I actually sang about John Prine and talked about how great he was and how, you know, his smile would light the light the room and his his smile would light the whole wide world and his songs would still room so that was the surreal aspect of that um but we're working away my wife's in there on her computer working for clients she's more at the center of the community of nashville than i am i've always been on the road or in the studio so i'm sort of a guy that appears on holidays (laughs) (laughs) waves waves at everybody and goes back into a you know tour bus or something well i wonder about that too just sort of you know the experience of sort of writing this record and and being confined at home as you said you know 200 plus days on the road a year for 35 years to sort of have the brakes put on that so suddenly like just what what has that done to you you know mentally creatively spiritually just sort of all those things to you know just suddenly come to a grinding halt like that it was shocking at first but i love to write and record and perform and so i just started doing it again i started playing on my on my front porch for the neighborhood and yeah. broadcasting it on the internet and um, I did all the session work I could do at home. I made my record. I'm, you know, I recorded, wrote, recorded, and mixed spring break. And then it was suddenly it was like, you know, then it was like May or June, you know. And we just kind of kept, we kept, kept rolling. So it was, it was surreal. But I'll, I'll tell you this, and this in no way is to romanticize this time period. However, this is the most I've been home at a stretch since 1994. Wow. So I hate it, and I love being at home. Yeah. 
No, I, I completely agree with you. I know exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> that there is yeah. just the, there is something nice to sort of this new pace of life and sort of readjusting to that. And just, you know, I, I had a weird dream, like, I don't know, a month or so ago that I was just at a, at an airport, like waiting to board a flight. It was like a, like a business conference to Richmond, Virginia or something. Like it was just not a flight that I would have ever cared about. I ever looked forward to. And it was just the most boring, like, you know, okay, group B can come up. And it was like the happiest dream. Like I woke up with just the biggest smile. Like, oh yeah, yeah. that whole thing. <laughs> like I just, I forgot what that was like. Oh yeah. Um, I also, you know, I, I can sort of, we talked a little bit about the late great John Prime Blues, but there were some other yeah. songs on the album that sort of stood out to me and, and sort of felt um, really sort of of the moment. And All Fall Down was one that, yeah. that really came to mind. You know, I, I love, there's two lines that I wrote down that sort of stood out. We rise and we fall together. It all comes around and we all fall down. Mm -hmm. What What were you thinking about when you wrote that? Well, you know, it's on the dollar bill. United, we stand, divided, we fall. And we certainly are not united. Yeah. Um, although when we when we talk personally, and that's in another song, My Right Wing Friend. Yeah, that was the other one actually, I wanted to ask you about, right? Right on, yeah. So, I mean, when we when we communicate personally, rather than through you know social media and i love i mean i love social media i don't use it for my sole news source or my political my political voices i mean i've got a microphone and a the way to release songs i've already got a voice you know if i want and i and the main one is i go vote you know i voted first day of early voting here so i'm already there right i think somehow having a voice via social media has created even more resentment about feeling like you don't have a voice. Mm. And I think that's fascinating, but I'm, I'm really you know tired of being fascinated with it. You know, people being so bitter about not having a voice, but then you, they talk about it every day and you see their voice and it's like, or, you know, I hate the media and you, you want to go, everyone's the media now. <laughs> that's Own true. Up. Yeah. Right. You're on Twitter. You're the media. So yeah. we're all, we're all it tag. We're all it, you know? So, uh, and I, I, I have my own viewpoint and I'm sure you know, half the people desp would despise my viewpoint, but I do know that if I reach out to my right-wing friend and we actually talk, then we, we're still friends. Yeah. If we just badger each other on Twitter, then we're in a fight. Yeah. Well, that's what struck me about that song about my right-wing friend is sort of that it's just this beautiful arc of a story of, you know, what, 35, 40 years of friendship that you touch on politics a little bit, but it's really about all the other things that you share, you know, camping trips and things like that. And right. just sort of that idea that like politics for, for whatever reason now it's so front and center in every discussion and everybody's, you know, it, it's the first thing we all go to and think about. And you know, you think back, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, even like it just it was sort of there. Maybe maybe you sort of suspected the way that people would vote. But I guess also, too, like there wasn't that big of a gulf between the two parties either. You know, like right. it was just sort of like, how do you feel about tax rates or, you know, right. school funding or whatever? And, and it felt like both right. sides were kind of legitimate points of view that, oh, you want a little more taxes? I want a little less or whatever. But right. like it has just become so hyper-focused on, you know, what do you believe and which side are you on? And that's, that's what I loved about that song, I guess, was just sort of that there's room to connect with people that you may see completely opposite points of view from. And it's important to do that. I mean, during that whole time I had, I mean, I'm from 
I'm from lower Alabama. I've been in Nashville a long time, but I'm from down there on the Gulf Coast and yeah. way down south. And I remember having having people tell me, sort of give me this sort of farewell on Facebook or something. And they're like, well, I guess since we're not on the same page, I guess, you know, well, I guess we can't really we can't really talk anymore. Wow. And I said, we're talking we're talking right now. Yeah. And and, and I thought I've, I've written a whole another record. One, you know, one song is called The Same Page because it. You know, to say we're not on the same page, it's like, well, we're in the same solar system. We're on the same continent. When we don't get to see our old parents, we miss them. When we get sick, we feel bad. When we, you know, I mean, it, we have so much more in common. And I'm not trying to gloss over what's going on in the country, in the world. I get there's there's a reason for things, but we don't have to just go along with the trend and you know, like I said, I went and voted, you know, oh, I'm so political. Well, it's just it's political to not vote. But, right. But that's what I, that's how I was raised. My parents were like, you don't vote for somebody because you think they're your best friend. You vote for somebody because they're going to pave the street. Right. And they're going to make the right decision about whether to go to war and things like that. And you, you can't guarantee any of it. You just go pick the person that you think would do it best and you go vote for them. And half the time you hold your nose and vote. But yeah. I, I just do it, you know. It's not that you love the system so much. It's that you want a system to get better. Yeah. And as you say, you're not going to agree with, with every piece of every candidate, but you've got to yeah, sort of no figure way. out, yeah, like what, where where do I fall? You know, can I be comfortable with this piece? Or if not, if I don't vote for somebody or, you know, if that other guy wins, like, am I going to be okay with all that? It, it is important. I, I totally agree with you. Have your voice heard. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we're here and making this record and it is a strange thing to make a record and not be able to go play shows necessarily. Yeah. I am playing Nashville Friday night at one of these, you know, half capacity kind of things. And then I'm playing a little festival down in Alabama that's in a, a drive in setting now. Wow. And, uh, and that's, and then that's it. But you know, also one of the things that ramped up during this time is my work with songwriting with soldiers. Songwriting with soldiers is an organization that, tries to build a bridge between people who have been in the military, particularly combat veterans yeah. and the civilian world by, you know, having really sensitive and professional songwriters go and meet with combat veterans who usually have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and commonly known as PTSD and in a proper private secluded setting somewhere far far out in the middle of the nature somewhere and we listen without judgment to stories and help those folks turn their stories which oftentimes they've never even told their spouse or their right. children they feel like no one will understand not even the closest people so it's a really well curated program so that by the time the songwriter gets there the soldiers are ready to tell their story and we listen and we use only their words for making the song and just, just carve it into something musical. Wow. And then Warrior Path is is a, an organization that has developed an entire – it's not a treatment program because it's not clinical, but it's an education program to teach combat veterans with post-traumatic stress to learn all the ways that you can experience and learn post-traumatic growth and how to deal with the anxiety and this depression and the anger that comes with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it's an 18 month program that folks are in 
and the songwriter comes in in the first week and the first week is this intensive 70 plus hour work week and again the songwriter comes in at a at a very particular time when the veterans are opened up to tell their stories and so i've been doing pat warrior pass for the last several months and um it's ramping up because it was written into a curriculum and now can be used by retreat centers you know it can be paid for by insurance or va you know and stuff like that so it's grown 300 percent in the last year and a half or something wow. like that so i'm doing it once a month and probably in 2021 i'll be doing it twice a month and it's it's intense work so that that plus my patreon and my studio work and writing and even just playing on my front porch once a week is really a full-time job now yeah. and so it's it's wonderful yeah. i thrive best when i'm busy and doing what i love and so i've just made it be that way but but again the songwriting with soldiers and the warrior path program growing at this time is just a godsend to everyone i think it's just a beautiful beautiful thing to get to do i mean i think of it as nothing but just a blessing for me yeah and it's important work too i mean that that's i hadn't heard of it before but that's incredible yeah it's 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 great and for folks that don't know about it, it's songwritingwithsoldiers.org, and they can look up Warrior Path. And P- Path is P-A-T-H-H, a program for alternative training for healing heroes. That's awesome. Yeah. Warrior Path. It's a cool team to be part of, so that's that's a big part of my life. And, you know, I'll tell you another thing that happened right before this all, you know, before the world shut down and all this stuff. I, I worked on this Jimmy Buffett record. And I co-wrote four of the songs and played on the whole record. So that, you know, that was in the pipeline. My, you know, pay for working on the recording sessions was in the pipeline. I mean, not to get too nuts and bolts about, you know, TMI about my my life, but I was in a little different place too. Like my wife and I came home and we're like, what are we going to do? And my wife was like, we still got that musicians union money out there. And I was like, oh, right. And then the songs I co-wrote are on that record. And so that kind of royalty is in the pipeline down, you know, a, now coming up on six months from now, I'll probably start getting that. So yeah. again, the, the groundwork I have laid over all these years is coming to fruition now when, uh, let's just say the two, two main pillars of my work existence, live playing and going to studios are sort of knocked out for the most part. One of the things that was rising in my work life, uh, the songwriting with soldiers part has, has risen to a more prominent place and I'm, I'm happy with that yeah I, I don't know about you too but i i found that my expenses my cost of living has gone way down in this time too. yeah <laughs> just like it, it's one thing to be worried about sort of where the next paycheck is coming from when you're living a little more lavishly but you know we're eating we haven't had any meal at a restaurant since march right. at all um you know we're cooking everything at home like one of my cars is getting a little older and probably at the point where we would normally replace it. But like, you know, we're not driving and it's like, it right. feels worthless. <laughs> like, why are we buying a new car right now? And just, you know, right. it's uh, it's amazing how much simpler <laughs> we can live, I guess. Right. It's, it's At first it's like, oh my God, we have to live like this. And then, you know, a couple of months later you're, you're like, oh, we can live like this. Yeah, Totally. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I, I'm with you on that, that, that is, it's to be forced into a change can be a good thing. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I, I was really taken just sort of hearing you talk about, you know, the songwriting process, especially, you know, the songwriting with soldiers and all, and thinking about sort of the importance of creativity and music and expression and 
just sort of, I, I feel like a lot of people have been trying to figure out just how to keep that going, myself included. I mean, it's why I started this mm-hmm. podcast because I, I just, yeah. you know, lost my other outlets during this time. But like for you, I wonder just what was it that first hooked you into music? What made you decide you wanted to follow this career path? I heard music with a new ear when I was about 10 years old. Okay. It wasn't because of one particular artist or anything like that. It's just all of a sudden music sounded like something important hmm. to me. And I started to realize that I could pick out melodies and, you know, learn songs quicker than other people. And then I discovered two things that may sound like they don't belong in the same sentence, but I discovered Kiss, the band Kiss, uh-huh. Kiss Alive, 1975. Yeah. And I discovered Bruce Springsteen via the born to run record again 1975 so at that point i'm 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 11 yeah so music started to sound different coming out of my sister's room she had a good record collection but nothing particularly like crazy but you know she had those two double double beatles albums the blue one and the red one that yep. was 62 to 66 and 66 to 70 and so i heard all those beatles tunes and then she had uh cat stevens greatest hits and oh yeah the best of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young so far with, you know, all those great songs. And then she had the Eagles records and Linda Ronstadt, Chicago, Seals and Crofts. And then the radio then was playing all that stuff. Plus, you know, all that sort of Philadelphia soul, like the OJs and the, the Spinners. Oh, yeah. right. And and then even Nashville stuff like Charlie Rich would cross over you know, uh, the most beautiful girl in the world and all that stuff. And then outlaw country, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and, and the, and the, that era of Bob Dylan with, uh, blood on the tracks and desire. So I've heard all that stuff. And now when I talk about it, it does sound good. Yeah. <laughs> and I also loved kiss for an 11 year old boy in 1975. It was like cartoon heroes come to life. <laughs> right. Totally. And then you had the CD sort of digestible version. You know, the Rolling Stones were maybe not at their peak at that time with Keith being all drug addicted and stuff. But Aerosmith was at their peak, right. you know, did walk this way and sweet emotion. And I liked all that stuff. So kiss was the bait. And then I got reeled in and Springsteen was on the dock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so on my 12th birthday, which was 1976, a spring of 76, I turned 12 and my parents said, what do you want? I said, I want, I want an electric guitar and, and an amp. And they were like, well, that's a lot to ask for. And so I said, well, I'll find a cheap one. So I found, you know, a $20 guitar and a $10 amp yeah. used at the record. I mean, at the music store. And then, and I said, I want to go see Bruce Springsteen. And they said, well, you're sure asking a lot this year. And I was like, well, it's only $4 and 50 cents. It was four fifty to see Springsteen at the. Wow. He played two nights at the Mobile Municipal Theater, and uh-huh. he played Mobile, Alabama, two nights in a row because we had a great radio station that was one of the stations that broke Born to Run, and so he played two nights. Awesome, because he couldn't play the arena yet, yeah. but he knew he could sell two thousand tickets. Right. So he said two nights in a row at the thousand seat, and my twelfth birthday, I got a guitar, and then my parents dropped me and my friends off and saw Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band in a tiny little theater. Wow. So, you know, that right there tells you. Yeah. That's, I went home. <laughs> that's bait right there, yeah. totally. I yeah. went home and the guitar was glowing like the sword and the stone. Right. You know, it was like, oh, what are you going to do with me, kid? You know, and I was like, I know what I'm going to do. So six months later, I was playing in a band, singing in front of a band at, at the local skating rink. And then I never stopped because yeah. I just, I got inside of it and it got inside of me. 
and now I'm standing in my home studio looking at like this rack of like 20 guitars and banjos, and mandolins and basses and keyboards <laughs> and amps and pro tools and microphones and, you know, a snake's nest of cables on the floor and MIDI cables and boxes of CDs and records and <laughs> a piano. <laughs> the best thing about it, I think, is that it just never stops. Like if you're a songwriter, then you never stop just thinking about the future yeah. because even if you're just thinking about this idea, I wish I could write a song about this, then it's in your mind and the seed is planted. And pretty soon you're going to, you're going to carve out a, an, an afternoon and work on that song. And so, and you know, that just is the first time that ever occurred to me that the creative life is one in which you are always living in the present and looking towards the future mm. if you do it right i think and i don't know if i do it right but i feel like i do if i'm if i feel productive and happy yeah i've always wondered like with with songwriting because for me it's a very different you know my background's in, in tv and film and things like mm -hmm. that and you know you make something and you put it up and it's done but like with a song you know if it's a hit song you might be playing that you know, you talk about like the Rolling Stones or something like they're still right. playing the same songs like 50 years later. Like, right. I wonder just sort of like the intimacy of writing a song in a moment and sort of putting down what you're feeling in that very specific moment and then having to revisit that again and again. Like just what what goes through your head when you when you play back a song that maybe you wrote, I don't know, five years ago or 10 years ago or something. And, and you're in a very different place now, but the song is still the song. I feel like that the songs I've written in the last 25 years still have a resonate with me a little bit because mm. that's the time that we've had children. Yeah. And I think so that that time when the children were born, the subject started to morph around a bit into more of a looking outside of your own you know, there's, uh, the, you know, 10 years of songwriting before that of they're, they're actually out on recordings that I can refer to yeah. that are more about me and, you know, I'm in love with you and you're not in love with me. Right. And I'm what, you know, where do I, where do I fit in this world? And then children are born and you're like, oh, this is where I fit in the world. Yeah. Right totally. here. I'm I'm already there. Yeah. I just need to, uh, you know, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a freaking job. So, um, so when I started writing with soldiers in a, even though I'm not a therapist, but it is therapeutic. And also for me, as it turns out, but yeah, right. I didn't realize how powerful it was until I wrote with a soldier and it's not always this way, but oftentimes there's sort of an, an amazement that someone was listening to what someone had to say and wrote it down exact, you know, verbatim yeah. and then read it back to someone and said, I think the first line of the song is this. That's what you said about 30 minutes ago. And, and the person might look up and go, I said that. Yeah. And you have to sort of stage it out so that you're not just taking the song away yourself. Cause you're, you know, I've written hundreds of songs, so I could just roll with it and start writing a song, but I need to use their words. And yeah. for instance, songwriting with soldiers weekend retreats those are some group writing but a lot of individual one-on-one -on -one writing and that is not easier but it's way different from always showing up and having this one two and a half hour shot at writing a song with a group of as many as eight people who kind of need to tell you their life story yeah they need to tell you where they are now 
where they were in the past and where they want to go in the future, you know, the, the traditional sort of therapy questions. And that really does help. So those songs often have a similarity of like, I'm finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for the first time in a long time because I was in a dark, dark place. And I want to take this light with me into the future and show my family and show my friends Mm. that I can relate to them again. And I feel opened up a little bit more, you know, so, so a lot of times you you write versions of that song, but God, what's wrong with that? You know, and especially when somebody else is telling you their story and it's just your job to carve it out. So I learned a lot about the value of songwriting and and just creativity and collaboration, which I already knew about, but I didn't have a quantitative value on it. And now I sort of have this way of looking at it. Like it really is worth something and it, renews it to me because I'm, I'm almost always writing with people who've never even thought about writing a song. Yeah. Well, that's what I was sort of curious about too, is like, these are non musicians that you're working with. They're just people with a story to, to tell. Right. Yeah. So, so I take the stories with warrior path again, it's I've written one, one of my favorites ever was uh, eight women combat veterans. And I had two hours basically, and everybody was tired. It was at the end of the day. And so then I show up, you know, at dinner. Hey, I'm Will. I'm going to write a song with you after dinner. They're all exhausted from doing all the things they've been doing all day. And eight women combat veterans tell me their story. And I somehow managed the time without making anybody feel like I cut them short, yeah. I think. And we get to the end of the of the circle. And I'm my mind is just racing through all the because I'm taking notes, right. but I'm trying to keep eye contact. And I'm trying to write down what people say. And so, so then I go around and, and, and circle back with people and say, now you said this, did you mean this? I, I, I want to get this right. And so they would clarify some things. And then, uh, I seize on a line that someone said as a title and I start singing a chorus and they start to really lean in and then it develops, but it's their words. But I also, also got to make it rhyme, you know, because it's a song. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> songs. I mean, you can you can make songs that don't rhyme, but if you go listen to your five favorite songs, if you named them off the top of your head right now, whatever you thought of, and you went and looked at the at the lyrics, I I would bet you fifty bucks that they'd have a a rhyme scheme that stayed the same all the way through the song. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and um and so I always tell people that I'm like, no, the rhyme the rhyming matters because you want the listener to be drawn in and be interested in this song. And it's not just the words. That's the power of a song. You have this power of language, power of rhythm, yeah. power of harmony, right. uh, melody. And you also have the the, voca- the musical vocabulary of the entire history of recorded music, if you want to draw from it, if you mm. want to make it bluesy, if you want to make it you know, jangly and sparkly, or if you want to make it sad and minor, you can do it. Yeah. I want to ask you too, just, you know, the the whole writing process fascinates me and I'm curious, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about taking people's stories and turning them into songs in that way. But like when you collaborate, you mentioned like working with Jimmy Buffett and, and that's, right. you, you've done four or five records for him now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like when you're writing for somebody else like that and somebody who's just so well known and sort of has this very particular voice, like, I guess, walk me through sort of what that process is like. Well, one thing I've learned is to not try to, you know, out Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to suggest we say toes in the sand or pour me another tequila. Right. I'm going to let him decide how much of that he wants to put in. So I'm going to bring him a song. Uh, for instance, if I bring him a song of mine or a song idea that I'll lay on him, I'll sort of sketch it out and send him a, you know, a little phone recording or something and say, 
I just thought you might want to be interested in hearing this. Now, Mr. Buffett is a busy mogul right. of an empire. Yep. And so if he's not thinking about making a record, he might go, yeah, that's cool. We'll think about that sometime. And then one day, you know, somebody at a business meeting or something, or he just gets inspired. I think it's sort of a combination of both. And it's like, I, I, it's time for me to make a record. I think it's his decision. He's he who runs the company, you yeah. know, so he it's his his record company even so yeah and, and i feel like at this point he doesn't he doesn't need to it's not a paycheck thing at this point i don't think no it's it's but it's what he does yeah. you know i mean it's in addition to other things but he still likes to play and he still likes to make a record and, sure. and write some songs so but he likes to have a team and he's got a team with with uh, mac McAnally, who's a brilliant musician and a brilliant writer so he's got mac and he's got me for whatever reason he likes me yeah. <laughs> and um and so it's been 17 years now that we've, oh, wow. we've worked together on every record here's a good story for you this is this is this tells you a, a very good example of, of what i do with jimmy buffett he sent me a pdf one day and i looked at it at the bottom of an email as an attachment and i thought that's, that's interesting he sent me a pdf not a not a you know word file or yeah. a text file you know i wonder what that is so i opened it up and it was literally like a um, some kind of ipad pdf that had drawings and pictures and lyrics and but not a whole song of lyrics and different choices of how the lyrics might possibly go yeah and then the idea like it was a storyboard huh and he said i want i want to write this song and but i'm 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 busy doing this to this week so can you get started on this and send it to me maybe send it to mac and We'll, uh, we'll work on it. So I just took it and I just I just said, I'm going to write a song and send it to him and he can change it all he wants or whatever right. or not use it. You know, I mean, so it was called Mailbox Money. And it's this whole story about this place. We're both from the same part of the Deep South around Mobile Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And and there's a river called the Magnolia River. And there's a little community on it where for the last hundred years, the mail's been delivered by boat. Everybody has their mailboxes out on their docks. And so the mailman has a mailboat and goes to your mailbox on a flat-bottomed boat with an outboard motor. Wow. And so he just decided he was going to th – th th there's a songwriter who had one hit and lives off of those royalties and lives on the Magnolia River down at Magnolia Springs and gets his mail by boat. And one day the mailman retires, and so the songwriter takes over the job. So it's just this <laughs> random story. Right. And he, but he made a whole storyboard and all the, and he sent, he put links on there for, you know, information about the Magnolia River. Luckily, I already knew. Right. And I, you know, I looked, looked it up anyway. So I just wrote a whole song and made a recording of it and sent it to everybody and said, check this out. And so it turns out the music is exactly what I wrote. The melody is exactly what I wrote. He changed the lyrics and it became a song that I wrote with with Jimmy Buffett. Wow. And so then I, we had another song that was supposed to be the title track. And I was honored to be you know, asked, help me write the title track to this record. Well, while I was writing a song, Jimmy was busy. I started writing it with Mac McAnally over the phone over the Christmas holidays in 2019. Yeah. And I'm taking long walks and talking to Mac on the phone. And then I'm hanging up and getting on the phone and just singing into my phone probably looking like a crazy person all over Nashville, just walking around <laughs> singing into my phone. But I mean, it's also probably pretty commonplace right, here. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and so I, I, I write a song and, and then Mac hears it and he says, I, I like it. I like it, but I need, can you, will you mind if I take a stab at, at a new chorus? So he writes a beautiful chorus and we send it to Jimmy. And I mean, it is a, an airtight crafted Nashville songwriter song. It is good. Yeah. 
and then Jimmy replies, well, I've already written this song written. I, I, you know, I wrote that today with Peter. So he, he wrote the same titled song. He said, but I like your you got a song. Can you change the title? I walked around for two hours trying to figure out a title that would work with the lyrics of the verses. Yeah. <laughs> and I came up with one. And so then I sent it to Mac and he did, made a beautiful demo of it. And then we went to Key West and recorded the whole album and we recorded like 16 or 17 songs. And the song that we wrote, that we wrote and rewrote became a song called just right. And it didn't end up on Jimmy's record and it ended up on Mac McAnally's record. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's always that sort of, well, we made, we created it. So somebody ought to do something with it. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, so I got a storyboard and, uh, another song and and i'll tell you this too the original idea for the title track which was called slack tide and it's the the, a a reference to to you know the tides of the ocean and a slack tide is that perfect moment in between low and high where the water is completely calm yeah and he was just talking about society he was like let's Mm. let's go back to slack tide and have and just you know like let's go put on some snorkel a snorkel and some fins and go underwater and look at what happens, you know, sure. The big fish eat the little fish, but there's also some <laughs> peaceful beauty for a human being. <laughs> but I wrote some, some lyrics I had written for the original slack tide song wound up in the song Jimmy wrote with Peter. So now I'm a co-writer on slack tide. And then the, the album is now called life on the flip side. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, working in, in, in your line of work, I mean, you collaborate and you do your job and you know, as a pro, you know, this is when you know you're a pro. When your idea gets turned down, you might, if nobody's going to use it, you sock it away if you know it's good. Right. But you also don't get all pissed off. You just, you go, okay, okay, I got another idea. Yeah. You know, how about another, how about this one then? So you always have ideas in your back pocket. And it's not that you have preconceived them, but that you're just ready with your vocabulary of, of melodies and rhythms and freedom to spit out an idea without fear of it being rejected yeah. and that's when i knew i was like okay well i think i'm a, I'm turning pro here right. well it's that collaboration piece too right of just of figuring out what the other person is looking for or what they're putting out there and figuring out you know how do i key into that how do i add to that how do i shape that whatever you know and and yeah with each creative partnership that dynamic just it can be totally different you know like there's no formula you can tell somebody that's coming into this and saying like okay yeah. here's how it works it's just it's it's reading the room and reading the people across from you and trying to figure out what they need and trying to figure out what you want to say and just making it all work together right yeah and just just be yourself and say whatever comes to to your mind because i mean especially at this point it's been 17 years they they like me around right and and so I was just always vocal with my ideas. I didn't try to take over the sessions or anything, but if they wanted me to play the guitar solo, then I played a guitar solo. And if they didn't use it on the record, then, hey, I got paid to play a guitar solo in Key West and, and somewhere it's on a hard drive and I had yeah. a great time. I <laughs> totally. got paid. Yeah, I kept my chops sharp on the guitar by playing all day. And, and anybody who's worked in studio work knows that, that you're, what you do is just providing content and they may or may not use it. And that's just the way it goes. So your ego starts to be a different animal. Yeah. And I think that's good. It's been good for me as an artist to, to not get my feelings so hurt because it is, it's entirely just a subjective line of work. 
Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it, the audience is fickle. You know, the people around you can be fickle. It just, you never know exactly yeah. what's going to hit and what's not. And, you know, for somebody like, I'll tell you this real quick, for somebody like me who's lesser known, I actually have more freedom to play new songs and my small but loyal fan base is actually interested in my new songs. But, you know, when you go see Paul McCartney, yeah, he's got 40 or 50 songs that the audiences demand right. to hear. And he yeah. knows that yep. he's going to play. Last time I saw him, he played 41 songs. Wow. Does he in everyone except for a few that he played three songs that were newer. And that's when everybody went to the bathroom or went to get a beer. Yeah. And you got to sneak him in the middle. <laughs> and I felt, you know, he's yeah. like, here's one from a new album. Or was there, Oh, Hey, you want to go to go to the bathroom and yeah. get a beer? You know? Right. And, um, and I felt like, wow, that's Paul McCartney. Yeah. And he, what he did was he wrote, he was so brilliant there for, let's just say from 1962 to 1982, that he wrote a four hour show that he will never be able to not play those songs. Yeah. And that's something you touched on earlier. Now, of course, do what do I wish I'd written Let It Be? Yeah. <laughs> do I wish I'd written Band on the Run? Yeah. Do yeah. I wish I'd, I'd written, you know, Eleanor Rigby? Oh, yeah. But also can appreciate that the glass is half full side of when I go play, you know, in Australia and at 50 five years old i'm the new guy at the folk festival yeah and they're all sort of listening to me play this hour set of me by myself on stage with just an acoustic guitar and a mandolin that's cool too right and it's fun and i'm sure mccartney would go i wish i could i wish i could do that once like once every couple of years and just right. show up somewhere and nobody would know it was me and i could just play some some songs i just wrote yeah and and to work them out too i think right i mean that's like yeah he, he can't really audition new material either you know it's as you right. say, you've got to right. play that you know if hey jude is not in there you know yeah. they're gonna I read revolt. an article with him once in the it was a new yorker article so it was one of those long articles yep. with no pictures just words <laughs> you know it's like you had to wait for a long plane ride to read it and of course i did and he was in his studio in london and he was working on that record called chaos and creation in the backyard which is a wonderful record and he made it with nigel godrich who produces radiohead and beck and so a super cool modern producer who you know i chomped at the bit to work with sir paul mccartney and they made this beautiful record and mccartney in the interview says he goes he goes well you know he says there's a, a little sadness with an, always with the new record because you know you, you go on tour and, and and the audience really won't want it, won't want to hear these songs yeah and i thought wow that's Again, that's Paul McCartney. And so if you ever ask yourself as an obscure singer-songwriter out there, uh, what do I have over Paul McCartney? Well, there's more people at my – more percentage of the audience at my show that might want to hear a brand-new song than, it, than, than one of the Beatles. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's looking at it. That's looking at the bright side. And I know it's, it's a long way around that corner, but, but it's true. Yeah. It's, that's the optimistic point of view. I want to ask just one last question, and that's sort of – you know, as we talk about essential workers and things in this time, yeah, I, I can't help but think about how vital art and music and just sort of all of that is to our culture. Are you are you discovering that or, or you know, have you known that, I guess? Like, what what's your perspective on sort of the importance of music to to all of us as a society? I'm seeing it uh, when I started playing online. I, I started to see that more people would tune in to an online show than might ever show up for one of my live shows. Mm. I mean, you know, I'd play on Facebook and have, you know, 2000 people watching at one point. Yeah. 
And so you see that people, yeah, they do, they need it. It has a real primal value to people. And especially with songwriting with soldiers, it made me realize that the power of telling a story in a song and it doesn't have to be huge time entertainment. Although when it is, that's always good for putting a roof on the house, <laughs> remodeling the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. But for the other side of it, the human side of it is if you, if you put on that Miles Davis record or that Prince record or that Rolling Stones record or that Al Green record and it's the right time. There's nothing like it or, 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 or hear live music. Now, everybody does miss that visceral quality of hearing the music come out of the mouth, into the microphone, out of the speakers while you're there, that yeah. moment. And that's why I play live online. I could probably tape something and put it on YouTube and make it sound and look a lot better. But there's an immediacy that I'm trying to just keep going. So I try to mix up my live shows and go deep in the catalog or play new songs or for Labor Day, I did no sad songs, you know, or whatever. Yeah, there's a there's a, a value to it for sure, and sometimes you don't see it for whatever reason. But I, I see it. I mean, I'm just home with my instruments, and then I go out of town and write with soldiers, and I come back, and of course it stays important to me. There are people out there, and there are enough people out there to support somebody like me. And I would imagine that someone listening to this is like, who the heck is this Will Kimbrough guy? And that's cool. But the music does have a value, and all creative art does. My new record, the the cover art was drawn by my oldest daughter, and the and then the photography was done by my youngest daughter. And my neighbor down the street did the did the pack the album design. I, I sent the files a mile away over the internet <laughs> to my friend's mastering studio, and then we sent the mastered files to a studio on another part of town in Nashville, and they they made the lacquers for vinyl. And then we sent that to Memphis and the metal parts were made to make vinyl because you send a metal disc to the pressing plant and they make the vinyl yeah. and the vinyl is pressed, uh, pressed in Dallas. I'm in charge of all that. And I love it. I yeah. mean, I've learned to love it. And I wish I could have gone to the, to the lacquer mastering, but it was during a time when it was more quarantined here. So no, they didn't want anybody to come in, but because right. that's fun to see your, your, your music be made into a record. Right. Oh, it's gotta be so cool. Yeah, you take that metal disc coated in lacquer home and you play it a few times and you can't play it anymore but because it just starts to peel off. Yeah. But uh it's it's magic. You know, your your music gets made into a record. And um and it's, as the kid who went and bought Born to Run at Sears in 1975 or Kiss Alive at JC Penney or you know or right. Elton John uh Captain Fantastic at the Eckerd's drugstore, records are magic and yeah. uh and so for me it's always been a magic and and there was a period in my life where I didn't feel as magic about the job because I was just so busy and struggling to make a living. And I think I've come out the other end able to understand that the, the reward for a creative life is that you get to live a creative life. Mm. Making a living is almost outside of it. It's right. like it's a necessity and it also feels like gravy. And I mean, that really is how I feel. I, I don't know when I became such an optimist. But I, I learned that optimism isn't just foolheartedly looking at the future like everything's okay. Yeah. You know, it was more like, um, I think I can make things be pretty much okay if I do this. Mm. I can't, and I can't control these other things at all. Yeah. So I mean, and you know, my dad had dementia, and it was a long, long, drawn-out thing, and that made me more aware of how precious your mental health is, physical health. 
My mother was caring for him. My sister was helping. I, I, I went and helped as much as I could. My wife's a breast cancer survivor. My mother's a breast cancer survivor. So experiences can make different people look at the world differently. But all this has made me more and more grateful. Yeah. And so I just am. I just wake up every day and, you know, take my dog out and then go as soon as I make the list of what I'm supposed to do for the day after I'm through playing the guitar or the mandolin or whatever, then I go out and get the guitar and the mandolin and the notebook and the laptop and the phone and the computer and the microphone. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I'm so happy yeah. for you <laughs> just, you know, to, to find what you love and to, to be able to do it every day and, you know, keep a roof over your head. It's awesome. Yeah. And it's gotten better over the years. Uh, it's, it's more fun and it's more, I'm more grateful for it. All right. Will Kimbrough there. Will's new album spring break is available wherever you stream music. Also check out willkimbrough.com. You're going to see all of his touring information and stuff on there. You know, right now it's, uh, it's pretty quiet, but hopefully someday soon he can get back out on the road and be making some great music. And he mentioned it briefly in there, but uh, he has a Patreon site as well where you can subscribe to hear new music exclusively for Patreon members. So you can check all that out on his website. All right. I have new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope you'll come back for more sometime soon. I'll be back on Thursday with a brand new show. It's an exciting one. I'll tell you more about it then. Hit subscribe. You'll be the first one to get it. Stay safe, everyone. 